Hello and welcome to the July 2019 episode of the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I am Michele Matarazzo from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. Today, we are going to discuss an article that was published in the Movement Disorder Journal, titled Ventral Posterior Substantia Nigra Iron Increases Over Three Years in Parkinson's Disease. Dr. Niels Bergsland from the Buffalo Neuroimaging Analysis Center of the State University of New York at Buffalo is the first author of this paper and is joining us from Australia. Hello, Niels, and thank you for being with us today. Hello, thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure. So, your article is about a very specific neuroimaging technique, but in the last years there has been a high number of investigations looking at possible objective biomarkers for the diagnosis and for tracking the progression of Parkinson's disease. This involved not only neuroimaging, but also, for example, technology-based outcomes or CSF and peripheral tissue analysis between others. Can you tell our audience what biomarkers are currently available and why do you think this could be very important in Parkinson's disease? Yeah, sure. So as you mentioned, there has been a, really a, a lot of interest in developing quantitative uh, biomarkers of the disease. As we know, uh, current diagnosis is basically done at the at the clinical level where we're assessing uh, uh, motor dysfunction primarily. And really, if we can start to if we can have some quantitative measure that al allows us to diagnose or possibly predict the course of how the disease is going to evolve in a patient. Uh, you know, this can help us gain a better picture not only of the disease at the group level, but also at the individual patient level, which is really the ultimate goal. You know, we have things that work very well, or reasonably well, at least at the group level, but the ultimate goal of medicine at this point is trying to get something that's going to give us some information that can allow us to assess what's going to happen to the individual patient. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, we have, um, there's been... A lot of work done with looking at measures with uh, biomarkers within the CSF. Uh, now, this is, of course, valuable in that we are able to get a get markers that are in touch with that that are in touch with the brain. But that is, of course, limited by the fact that the a, it's an invasive procedure. So we can do it uh, once, perhaps a few times, but to do this on a regular basis, especially for monitoring levels, is pretty uh, difficult and invasive for the patient. Uh, as a result, there has been a lot of interest in looking at whether or not we can obtain comparable markers in the serum. And there is some evidence that, there, that some of this can be done. Uh, there still is a lot of work being done in order to assess how reliable this is and what the, what the actual predictive value is. And there's still a lot of conflicting reports in the literature. But as I said, there is a lot of progress being made in this field as well. We can also look at tissue samples as well, uh, and there's also, even in that, there's still quite a bit of discrepancy with respect to what we're actually measuring and if it can be measured reliably. Um, and we can also use uh, wearable measures, for example, we, where we can get quantitative measures of gait, but again, whether that is going to be reliable over the long term is still a matter of debate. Uh, then we have, as you hinted at in the beginning, uh, the use of neuroimaging techniques, which has gained a lot of interest, especially in terms of the, the ability to use MRI as a quantitative biomarker. Yeah, so your study specifically focuses on MRI-based iron detection in the substantia nigra of people with Parkinson's disease, comparing them cross-sectionally with healthy controls, and more importantly, assessing the progression over a time span of three years. 
Now, in the last years, there has been a growing interest in the study of iron load in Parkinson's. Why should we look at iron? Well, uh, it's been known for quite a while that the substantia nigra is characterized by greater amounts of iron compared to other gray matter structures. It's also been known that elevated substantia nigra iron levels are found in Parkinson's patients, uh, but this was really only accessible previously with post-mortem techniques, and of course that limited the ability to capture iron-related changes in the substantia nigra throughout the course of the disease. Uh, when, you have, when you're looking at post-mortem, you're generally looking at patients at a very late stage of the disease, unless you're lucky enough to capture someone that died due to something non-related non -related to Parkinson's disease. But with neuroimaging, but even before neuroimaging, uh, there is, there's been the use of transcranial ultrasound, which can allow... Uh, some assessment of the of iron within the substantia nigra. However, uh, even in that in that case, there is about twenty to thirty percent of people that have an insufficient temporal acoustic bone window, and so that you can, actually can't measure it. Um, but this turns us to the use of MRI, uh, where we have recent advances, both in terms of increased field strengths, where we have studies now being published using up to seven T MRI, um, even though the more Standard is 3T and perhaps even 1.5 still. Uh, but there's also been a lot of development in terms of the uh, advances in the acquisition and post-processing side of things. And this has really opened the door to the in vivo detection and quantification of iron. So I think that the there's... I'd say there's long been an interest in iron uh, in Parkinson's disease. It's just that now we have really the techniques that allow us to really look at it and study it and especially track it over time. Well, thank you for this explanation. Now, would you share with us the main results of the study and tell us what makes it different from other previous studies on the same subject? Yeah, sure. So uh, we looked at a we looked at a total of 18 Parkinson's uh, disease patients that had a mean disease duration of about 6.2 years, um, and we assessed them at baseline and then three years later. And we used a technique called quantitative susceptibility mapping, which is an indirect marker of iron content. And what we really wanted to do was to look at the uh, spatial, whether there were spatial differences in terms of iron content throughout the substantia nigra. Um, there is a lot of conflicting There's a lot of conflicting data in the literature regarding uh, iron findings in terms of how strong the findings are and exactly where they are. So what we wanted to do, we were actually we got kind of we were somewhat inspired by previous studies, and including one that we had done as well, uh, looking at differences that had previously looked at differences in uh, DTI-based outcomes. So what we did in this study was that we, we looked at the iron levels within the substantia nigra at the ventral and the dorsal level. So at the dorsal level adjacent to the uh, red nucleus, and then at the ventral level a few slices below where the red nucleus was no longer found. Then in addition to that, we also split the, the ventral and dorsal areas into anterior and posterior regions. So we we're essentially looking at four different areas of the substantia nigra. And what we found was that there was a, a highly significant group effect for the in the ventral posterior substantia nigra. And there was also a significant difference in the anterior, but the differences were not as strong. Uh, we also found a significant group by time interaction in uh, both of these areas at the ventral level. This was also reflected by a significant intragroup change over three over the three years of follow-up in the ventral posterior substantia nigra of the Parkinson's disease group. Interestingly, though, there were no significant changes in the healthy controls. Now, when we looked at the, the iron levels at the dorsal substantia nigra, uh, we, uh, we did not find any differences whatsoever uh, between, pati between patients and healthy controls. Dis somewhat disappointingly, though, we did not find any 
associations with any of the of the regions that we looked at with clinical measurements in the Parkinson's uh, disease patients. Uh, however, we interpreted this potentially as a result that this was potentially due to the fact that all of the patients were assessed in the on state, and this may have limited our possibility to uh, detect significant associations with the with with uh, clinical outcome. Great. So basically, in your sample, you have demonstrated that not only uh, the PD subjects and the healthy control differ at baseline, but also that the longitudinal changes are different between the two groups. And that in Parkinson's, the change is mostly localized in the ventral posterior subsension nigra. Now, did you also analyze the strength of this data on a subject level rather than on a group level? Or in other words, uh, could we use this technique reliably on one subject and be able to diagnose this person or follow this person progression over time? Right. That's an excellent question. This goes back to what I, uh, what I was saying in, the, in, in response to your first question about whether or not these measures can be, what we're, what we're measuring, if this can be used not only at the group level, but to track patients at the individual level. Um, this is something that we did not publish in the paper itself, although this is something that I've looked at a little bit subsequently because I was curious about this myself. And we see in the ventral posterior substantia Niagara, we get an area under the curve of about 0.89 with a sensitivity of about 95% and the specificity of about 77%. When we look at the same ROI at the follow-up, uh, due to the increase that we detected, we actually see a uh, sensitivity of 100% and 88% specificity with a increase in the area under the curve of up to 0.96. Uh, now, in the ventral anterior area, we see quite reasonable sensitivity and specificity with area under the curves of 0.76 at baseline and 0.85 at the follow-up, uh, whereas measured at the dorsal level, both, both values were on 0.6. So this is of course, in line with the actual findings that we see that that there were no really that there were no significant differences at the dorsal level for any of the regions that we looked at. If we try to do an ROC analysis where we look at the changes uh, over time, we see somewhat lower areas under the curve, even within the ventral posterior substantia Niagara, uh, where we have an area under the curve of about seventy five and a drop in the sensitivity to eighty nine and a half percent with uh, quite substantial drop in the specificity down to 50, 53%. So I think the results are encouraging in terms of being able to uh, transfer this to the individual level, but we're clearly not quite there yet, especially when we look at using this to track changes across time. Well, the the area under the curve was is really impressive, especially in some parts of the substantial area and the I think this is very interesting also considering the small uh, sample size, but also you were just saying that these results are different if you look at different parts of the substantial nigra. And this, I think this is a, another very interesting aspect of your study, which is the selectivity of the iron load in different parts of the substantial nigra. Why one region is more affecting than the others? Yeah, this goes back again to what we were discussing earlier, that I think our study clearly shows it's insufficient to assess iron by just assessing the entire substantia Niagara. Because unless you have a very, very strong effect, the effect, the clear effect that we're seeing in the, in the, in the ventral posterior area is going to get washed out. So again, it is important to consider the area that we're looking at. In terms of your actual question, um, exactly why this is, is, uh, certainly an area of active research. One of the possibilities, though, is that one of the major components of Lewy bodies, which we now are, of course, involved, is alpha-synuclein. 
and alpha-synuclein accumulates in the neuromelanin in nigral neurons. And this has been suggested to be one of the causes of neuromelanin loss in, this, in these cells. Uh, we also find iron in Lewy bodies. And iron itself has been demonstrated to actually increase the rate of alpha-synuclein accumulation as well. So in some, the, the, the data does seem to point towards a role of uh, alpha-synuclein accumulation and Lewy body formation with respect to iron. Now, interestingly, this appears actually to be very much in line with a recent paper that was also published in Movement Disorders by Jason Langley and colleagues, uh, where they looked at the reproducibility of iron deposition in two Parkinson's disease cohorts. Part of the issue, though, looking at the substantia nigra with MRI is that it's quite difficult to separate the substantia nigra pars compacta from, this, uh, from the reticulata using a T2 star-weighted image, uh, even on quantitative susceptibility mapping technique, which is derived from a T2 star-weighted image. Now, in the paper that I just mentioned by Jason Langley, they used a neuromelanin-sensitive uh, imaging technique to more accurately delineate the pars compacta. And what they show is that the more ventral slices have the bulk of the pars compacta, especially the posterior area, while the reticulata is practically all of what you end up seeing at the dorsal level adjacent to the red nucleus. So in terms of what we analyzed, uh, what we're likely showing here is that the Parkinson's disease-associated iron changes are really probably related to what is happening in the pars compacta when we assess the ventral posterior region. I was very happy, actually, when this paper came out because our idea of looking at these, uh, looking at the four regions was done independently uh, of this paper because this paper came out while I was just finishing the drafting of the original submission to movement disorders. And one of Jason Langley's conclusions, basically, is that, is that if you don't have a uh, neuromelanin-sensitive image to assess the pars compacta that you should be looking at the ventral area, particularly in the posterior region. So this really lined up with what we found in the current study. Well, that's very interesting. In the article, you also mentioned that the sample size is one of the limitations. Do you plan to expand the number of subjects or what should we expect to see in the future of iron imaging in Parkinson's? Well, yeah, unfortunately, the actual enrollment and the acquisition of the participants in our study was performed some years ago at this point. Uh, so we're at this point, we're limited in acquiring additional participants to obtain a comparable data, especially as our MRI scanner underwent, underwent a major software upgrade a few years ago. So even if we were to acquire new data, new participants at this point, that data would no longer be directly comparable with, uh, with the data that we've already acquired. But going forward, uh, our own group is certainly interested in performing additional studies with, new, with other participants and expanding the imaging acquisitions that we're using. So we want to use, for example, neuromelanin imaging, as I mentioned, and diffusion-weighted imaging as well in combination with uh, the QSM technique and also related technique called R2STAR. So uh, I think it's almost certainly the case that with these kind of multimodal imaging studies that we'll be able to shed further light on uh, clear the complex interactions between neurodegeneration and iron accumulation. So I think that as uh, moving forward, I think that we're going to see you know, more and more studies coming out that are using these kinds of multimodal approaches. And, you know, I think that this is, I don't think it's going to be the, the definite answer, but I think that it's going to help us gain a lot more understanding of what's actually happening over time. And do you think that when you say multimodal imaging, you also talk about functional MRI or maybe PET imaging or 
uh, it's going to be just uh, you know, no, I, no, no. I think those absolutely uh, have you know. I think those definitely have a place in terms of all of this as well. I think you know the more the more data we can collect and the more data that we can get from complementary imaging modalities, the better. You know that it's, it's certainly only going to help us understand the bigger picture of what's happening. Perfect. Now, do you want to share anything else with our listeners? Um, no, I, I've, I'd like to thank you for the interest in in our uh, our paper, and you know, I hope that this is I hope that the discussion we've been having um, is useful for for those that maybe haven't read the paper yet or want to dig deeper into some of the issues that we've discussed. Yes, I do think it's been very interesting. So thank you again, Niels, for taking the time of joining us today, and uh, thank you all for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the MDS podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher to listen to previous episodes and to follow our monthly interviews in the future. Thank you.